Welcome to the 53rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In episodes 51 and 52 of Ear to the Ground, economics researcher Ken Meter showed how our current food and farming system is sucking wealth out of our rural communities. Meter, who is president of the Crossroads Resource Center in Minneapolis, has done analyses of communities all across the country. He has found that no matter how productive farmers are, the current food and farming system seems doomed to bleed local economies of their vitality. The result is shuttered main streets, eroded farm fields, and a brain drain of young rural residents. His finding food and farm country analyses, as he calls them, also show in stark terms the ultimate irony. Some of the richest farming regions in the world often have very poor access to good food. Meter recently presented some of his findings as part of the Women's Environmental Institute's Organic Farm School Lecture Series. In this third of a three-part podcast, Meter discusses the steps some communities are taking to keep more of their food production wealth local. Okay, now I'm going to really get to good news, and we'll stop. What are people doing to make this kind of value network happen? I'm going to race through some, some of my favorite stories about how this is done. First of all, direct food sales are rising across the country in the West Coast, New England, Minnesota, around Denver. Some really big signs of farmers talking directly with consumers and saying, I have something that you can buy, I will sell it directly to you and eliminate some of this middle process. One of my favorite farms right now is the Winter CSA in Milan, Minnesota, running out of this greenhouse. Sells fresh organic greens only from November to April. You can't buy them in the summertime. They sell only within 30 miles to only about 20 people at this point. But they've built a very t- solidly designed plexiglass greenhouse that has heats the air, takes it down to some gravel below the ground that filters the air up in the middle of the wintertime to heat the greenhouse. Here's the inside. On a, I was there on January. The wind chill was 13 below zero. And, they said, and you see up here the temperature's over 65 when I'm there. They said it was up at 85 in the afternoon. They opened the door so I wouldn't be too hot. This is the sole heating element for the entire greenhouse, a propane heater that kicks on when the temperature goes below 40 degrees, 45 degrees. They say that they estimate about $50 a year to get this greenhouse because of the insulation and the clever systems that were they're designed to make maximum use of the sunlight. Gutters from Home Depot are the growing medium with organic soil in them. And they said, we wanted to buy stuff that you could buy off the shelf at Home Depot because we wanted everybody to have a chance to do this. They, they spent about $20,000 and needed a loan to build this first one, but they're now offering training workshops at Garden Goddess Farm in Milan, Minnesota, on how the system works. And you can see they're raising very healthy-looking, happy, organic greens. It's really working well from the standpoint of plants. They, they really report very few problems with pests or you know, some of the things that people sometimes uh, conjure up in greenhouse environments. Um, Northeast Iowa, uh, Kamyar and Cheyenne, who's a really great local food leader there, he's a member of the city council of Cedar Falls, Iowa. He was just quoted in the Washington Post last week. Uh, he's been working with local farmers. This is Greg Hoffman, who's producing a... He said it was, wasn't worth it for him to hire labor because it was too expensive and they didn't really work hard enough. So he basically made a UPIC operation. He now has 150 immig- primarily immigrant families coming to, to glean his fields to get fresh produce that they can take home and can, because they can buy it cheaper than they can get at the farmer's market, and they also get fresher quality, and they also know exactly where it came from. So his farm has become a, a gathering place for the, uh, the new immigrants of the, uh, basically within a 100-mile radius of Cedar Falls, Iowa. In 1998, Kamiar had three institutions, one nursing home, one college, and one um, 
restaurant buying food from local farmers. He's now up to 27, 25 institutions buying $2.2 million worth of food. But this shows the incredible growth of local food sales. It took Kamiar many, many years to build the awareness of why this is a good idea, to get people connected and to start people talking. And now it's reaching a, reaching a critical mass and sales are starting to take off. This is fueled by Canson's Farm Fresh Dairy, which is a dairy farm that 10 years ago told its kids to go and find another livelihood somewhere else because there was no money in agriculture. And then Jay Hansen looked and noticed his one son was working as a dairy inspector. Another son was selling inputs to dairy farmers. And he said, maybe they like the industry. Maybe I better rethink my farm. So he decided to do on-farm processing of milk, very similar to what Cedar Summit does in New Prague, Minnesota. By doing on-farm processing and not homogenizing it, he saves money in his processing process. He only sells again within 25 miles. He told me, I thought that selling local milk would be the sales point for our milk. It turns out that we're the best tasting milk on the market and we're a dollar a gallon cheaper than you can find in the commodity stream. And he's responsible for a lot of this bump because he's built such a visibility for that, that trade and he will only sell within 25 miles at this farm. Five family members now making a living off of a farm that he told his kids to go home from. The real hero is Brian at Rudy's Tacos in Waterloo, Iowa. 71% of everything, he, all the food he buys is local. He puts a placard on his table showing exactly what he's buying from local people. $178,000 of local purchases. This is on every table, so you know that he's supporting local farms every time you go into the place. He, uh, he has this poster showing, his showing farmers he buys from. He stacks up his tomatoes in the front doorway. When you, when you order, place your order, you're standing next to a palace of tomatoes that came from Iowa Farms that he's very proud to show off. And he says, I could never go back to buying from the commodity stream because people would not allow me to do it. The food tastes better now. They know I'm supporting local farmers. I'm getting more business. I'm making more money. I just, I could not possibly go back. David Swenson, an ISU economist, did a study. He basically calculated that if People in this eight-county region that Kamiya works in bought only five fresh fruits and vegetables a day from Iowa farms for three months of the year. It's sort of the minimum local exchange in the peak season only, not trying to extend the season, not trying to have something exotic. But that would create alone create $6.3 million of new labor income and 475 new jobs for the region, which is very comparable with a lot of factors that this region has been trying to chase in the last 20 years. I, I, I visited a commercial farm in Georgia they are paying four full-time people $30,000 a year as a farm. They're raising $320,000 of product in four and a half acres of farm. That's $70,000 of income per acre. Wow. And I spoke with the manager of the farm, and she said, you know, I think we can do better than this. I think we should be able to get to $100,000 an acre when we get really good at our systems. These are young folks working their butts off with a lot of motivation. But um, it shows you what can be done. This, you know, you compare that with say several hundred dollars an acre for a soybean or a corn product, and it's it's a it's a really kind of amazing how this stuff, if you were really build the systems, can be done in very different ways than we imagine. Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, started thinking about sourcing food for its cafeteria for local farms, and they said, well, if we're going to do that, we need a warehouse. We can, we can buy onions and peppers and beets and the or onions and potatoes and beets and root crops in the fall and store them until we need them. In, in the wintertime. So we need a bigger warehouse. We need some cold storage. And then they were going to meetings with some of their neighbors who were organizing the Grinnell Area Local Food Alliance who were having the same discussion, saying, we want to buy local foods, and that means we need warehouses and cold storage. So they sat down together and said, 
The college could build a bigger warehouse than it needs for its food service that will su supply an entire region of food. The college will take on ownership of the facility, perhaps, but certainly will provide the land, some of the capital, but the community will provide some of the capital and some of the ongoing support of the, of the project. So you have a, a college investing in a community-wide facility instead of just focusing on its own bottom line. Every university in Atlanta announced this year it has a goal of sourcing 75% of its food from Georgia farms in the next seven years. They're going from zero to 75%, they hope. This is a terrific challenge they set for themselves, and we'll see how far they can get in that goal, but it's, it's a sign of how, how much people are kind of moving to this idea that local foods would be a good option. I've worked quite a bit in Northeast Iowa Farm and Food Coalition. These good folks have actually invited me to give the same speech nine times to different constituencies. Because they said, every time we reach out to a new group of people, we want them to have our economic analysis in their mind. So they know why we're doing what we're doing. And they also, we want them to invite them in to, to, to our vision, instead of just coming in to get active. So here's the landscape in Northeast Iowa. They basically accumulated all these people into one process. And I, I must say, the first speech I gave was to six farmers in a living room in Northeast Iowa in November of 2004. And, and about 20 people who said they were going to come didn't come because they, they were working all night in the fields, plowing. But a year and a half later, they had 150 people active in what they call the Northeast Iowa Farm and Food Coalition, engaging all these people. The second speech I gave was to a group of 32 producers about six months after the first one. And when I was done speaking, one woman stood up and said, this is exactly what we need to show the Chamber of Commerce because they need to know what we're up against. Someone else in the room went home and changed his hog operation to a niche pork operation because he said, I can see the commodity thing is not going to sustain me. Ten of the people in the room wanted to throw me out of the county immediately <laughs> because they just couldn't believe the numbers were this bad and they said, you know, I can't, I can't believe that true story is true. They didn't tell me this to my face. They just went home and seethed about it for a while and talked, behind, you know, with each other. One person asked one of the more poignant questions I've been given when I, on my circuit of speaking. He's, he was a farmer and he said, you mean if I raise food for people, someone would buy it? And that's a remarkable question for an American farmer to pose in 2006. The third speech I gave was to 35 farmers. Actually, all these groups were represented in the third speech, 35 people. The first person to come up to me when I was done was the local lender who was about to retire. He said, your data shows why I've been making loans I didn't like for, 35, for 15 years. And he became the vice chair of the Farm and Food Coalition because he was in a position of respect in the community with some access to capital and the ability to make those connections and to say, I want to use my, my skills in a better way than the market has allowed me for the last decade and a half. And to see people surface like that and to work together and really frame a vision of saying, we want to raise local food, process it here, and eat it here, uh, it's just really inspiring to be around. Um, they formed a strategic plan very early so they could say, show the investors and funders, this is where we want to go. A core of that is the food cooperative in, in Decorah called Oneona Food Co-op. Their local food trade is $400,000 worth of local sales already as of, I guess, two years ago. 20% of their sales is local food already. Their growth is 22% a year. They're about to open a, a new co-op building on Main Street, three times the size of their, of their pre previous store. And they said, we want to become bigger than we have to because we want to be a facility that helps sort this regional food system that does some, can do some packaging and some, some value-added work right in our cooperative. So again, you have a private business saying, we want a bigger vision than we have to have. Some of the successes of that are listed here. I'm really 
this is an easy place to work. It's culturally quite unified. It's mostly white Scandinavian people. It doesn't have a lot of cultural conflict to try to play out. But they do have an amazing focus on the broader good and how do we work together to make this region as strong as we can. But it's also difficult work, and this is complicated stuff as we've seen. And the, the economy is depleted enough. It's very unlikely the region, local region will have its own capital exclusively. It's going to take some outside investment from the federal government, from foundations, from investors of various kinds. They have, however, gotten a half a million dollar grant from the Kellogg Foundation for a food and fitness initiative to help organize small groups of people that will exercise together, support each other to eat well, create a cli whole climate of living right, exercising well, focusing on local foods, and doing a lot of education and connection around food in that region. The Aldo Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture published a regional food system planning guide that I helped author, which is a really terrific tool for local people to use in terms of framing. Organic sales are increasing in pretty much the same places as direct sales were because the same kind of conversations in local food groups are, are fomenting in all those places. Here's the national headquarters for Organic Valley in Lafarge, Wisconsin, a town of about 400, I believe, a very small settlement in southwest Wisconsin. This is Organic Valley sales chart. Going they're now selling $480 million of product a year. Uh, 1,300 farmer members. They started as eight farmers disgruntled in southwest Wisconsin in 1988 during the last farm crisis, sitting down together just like the farmers I spoke to in northeast Iowa saying, this isn't working, what are we going to do? And after years of discussion, setting up systems, getting some initial trade made, making some mistakes, learning the power balance of being a cooperative of cooperatives, they're now really taking off and selling products nationally. I'll save a few organic stories for the last because Woodbury County, Iowa, around Sioux City has become one of the paramount organic counties in the country because of a very active rural economic development official named Rob Marcusi, who's a visionary guy, a lawyer, and is hired by the county to do rural development. He got the county to pass the policy that they will buy local organic food whenever they can find it within a 150-mile radius if the price is comparable to the existing markets. This is primarily for prison population. That's primarily what they supply by food for, but it means a commitment by the county to invest in organic agriculture. They're also offering a property tax break for farmers who convert from conventional to organic food production. So that for up to five years, up to five farms can get up to $50,000 each of a tax break if they're converting their farm from chemicals to a safer way of farming. They then helped a cooperative of growers form to broker organic food from those farms to the county itself and to Whole Foods in Omaha and to local marketers. They're about to announce tomorrow morning that they've gotten a commitment from Hy-Vee Food Stores, which is a food chain in Iowa, to buy organic food from the Sioux City Sioux label I'm about to show you um, if these folks can find a way to produce that food and process it and bring it to market. So they've got a major supermarket committing itself to buying their product. They opened a commercial food processing kitchen in an old fire hall, a great reuse of a space, so people can come in and make their own product, jams and jellies, but also they held a competition to see what the best salsa recipe using organic tomatoes from Woodbury County. They're now marking that under the Sioux City Sioux label with this beautiful logo. And now they're looking about, could we have Sioux City Sioux eggs or Sioux City Sioux something else that would be on this label. They're now framing what they call a homestead policy. The town of Danbury has said, we will donate 200 acres of our town's land for organic farm, farm production. Because if we don't do that, we're going to lose our population base so much, our town will be dry up. 
So we're actually trying to site a cluster of, say, five or 10 or 20 farms on 200 acres that would grow up together, would have shared common infrastructure issues, could collaborate on building a little local food economy in this one part of Woodbury County. All this happening because the county took a very aggressive step of saying, we're going to support local organic farms. And then finally, uh, Will Allen in Growing Power in Milwaukee, he came up here to speak at the Growing Garden Works Conference last year, uh, a couple months ago. Uh, I think he's coming back again to speak before long. A former bas professional basketball player who took some of his money and bought an old greenhouse in suburban Milwaukee, where he hires inner city kids to raise earthworms. And these earthworms produce compost, which is then dried and marketed to farms on a commercial basis. So you have inner city African-American youth raising inputs for Wisconsin farmers. Who would have guessed 20 years ago that would happen? It's an incredibly creative way, way of thinking about urban youth, about earthworms as a, as a useful product. The earthworms are on one side of the greenhouse. They actually, in a small way, help heat the greenhouse during the wintertime because of the heat they produce. It was a very high-quality uh, compost addition for the soil. Um, he also trains people on how to raise their own earthworms, so you can actually have that operation with your own compost, with your own refuse on your own farm. And this is the inside of the greenhouse, where they've modeled after the um, new alchemy institute in Massachusetts, a tilapia pond where tilapia fish are being raised, eating the green stuff that's growing there. The excretions from the fish go into the water and are pumped onto the plants that are raised nearby. So you have these cycles of fertility and life that inner city kids are learning how to manage. Also, bringing in $200,000 of income, selling their product to a CSA and selling it to stores, uh, getting out there and really creating a kind of livelihood around farming. And strangely enough, inner city kids are deciding their street cred in being a farmer. I'll just say this one thing. Um, I'm doing a study for Blue Cross about the Minnesota food system, and I interviewed many of the people that have multi-million dollar businesses who are trying to make a better food system in the Twin Cities. And what's really interesting is to a person, they said, we're doing fine, yet we're running up against things that are structural that we can't change. And so you have the very industry leaders who are doing very successful businesses saying, if we don't change the system, it's not going to work in the long haul. And they're what, they keep, what, they, what they kept saying over and over again, every person I spoke with said, this is really about forming relationships of trust. If we do that, we can negotiate a price that's going to work for everybody. If we have trust, we can ride through the times of flood, times of bad climate, because I know that someone who's been a valuable supplier of mine will continue to be trusted, trustworthy and will stay in relationship with me even if we have some ups and downs. And this is really the foundation of the new food economy, is building these close relationships together. For more information on Ken Meter's work, see www.crcworks.org. That's crcworks.org. The website for the Women's Environmental Institute is www.w-e-i.org. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and you'd like to support us, Go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. 
Thanks for listening.